I saw the pace of the investors getting back to us and it wasn't going as fast. And I saw the closing date approaching and we were so far from the final raise. And I kept asking him, what is plan B? And he's like, we don't have a plan B, we will raise. Being a real estate investor takes more than analytical skills, access to capital and a good network. It takes a certain kind of mindset to overcome the ups and downs, especially in times with increasing interest rates, economic uncertainty and major shifts in the industry. Today's guest, Raquel Adkins, has spent years building and refining her investor mindset, which is how she's been able to partner on 550 multifamily units in just a few years. From doubts to deals, this is how she did it. How did you develop this resilient mindset to help you navigate these challenges that you've encountered and the uncertainty associated with real estate investing? I always said, I always said, like, maybe I started in the worst time of the economy, right? Post-COVID and right when interest rates were going up. When I started, interest rates were out kind of on the control, but it, it just kind of declined as the year goes by. And and it was good and bad at the same time because after 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 seeing so many podcasts or hearing so many podcasts and interviews of big financial advisors, and they say back in the 70s, it was double digit, digits, you know? So it feels weird for us to be complaining about a high interest rate when it's not even double yet, mm-hmm. double digits, you know? So it, it changes your perspective a, a little to see like what, what is truly bad and good, you know? And you have strategies, you know, you you have to be creative enough right right off the bat, you know, because I'm pretty new and I'm trying to figure it out the whole the whole industry altogether, the whole process of acquiring and the whole legalities of, of setting up a syndication and working with other people's capital and things like that. And 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 the landing side of a of a huge multifamily deal, you know. Now you have to be on top of all of that. You have to learn how to be creative, you know. And I think what I adopt was a mentality of, okay, if the deal makes sense, the deal makes sense, whatever the, the price is. Because remember, maybe two years ago, the, the interest rate was low, but maybe the prices were a lot more. So it kind of compensates, you know. So you have to truly investigate your numbers, number one. And then second, you have to find creative ways. For example, now loan assumptions and, and seller financing are huge. Is what we look for to kind of stay away from this high interest rate. But sometimes I'm still on the writing new deals with new loans. And if the numbers make sense, the numbers make sense. And there's something that so, uh, someone asked me the other day, like, do you submit LOIs even if the price is really low? That I always, I, I'm a strong believer that you should always submit your letter of intent when you on the right of property, because if you come up with your number, that's your number. You submit an LOI and and hope for the best, because a friend of mine, she submits LOI and waits, you know, and sometimes everything else falls apart, and then she is the first one in line. So, stick to your numbers and be creative is a way that I'm navigating through this hardship, and it's good because I started in a in a kind of challenging times so then after that i hope is it's gonna be much easier yeah that's awesome we can absolutely relate uh we're always submitting lois always getting rejection and it's come is it is part of the game but i think it's even harder we asked uh, one of our mentors a few weeks ago if it was as hard to, to win deals a year ago or two years ago as it is today because we were saying obviously we understand it's not supposed to be easy but is it supposed to be this hard and i mean it's all relative of course but i, I think it is important to understand that yes Things are especially more challenging now, but you just have to be persistent and, and really see it that it's a long-term play. And there's always a good time to buy. You just have to to, to make the numbers work or stick to your numbers, <laughs> for yeah. sure. 
Yeah, one thing I noticed is it's uh, you also have a positive mindset and you're optimistic about things. And I know my brothers and I, we were working on a big raise last year and it was the biggest that we've that we'd done up until that point. And we literally had no choice but to have faith and just really focus on positivity in order to get through that. So I would love it if you could share uh, an experience where you had to lean on your own positive mindset in real estate. It's so funny you say that because when I started, when I was brand new, my first deal was done with my direct mentor through the mastermind that I am in. And uh, I was nerve wracking. I, I was a nerve wrack. You know, I was, I was the main role after we done with all the writing and the, on the contract and, and all the due diligence was to raise money. And I always had that question for him. I'm like, Hey, so what happened if we don't, because I saw the pace of the, 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 the investors getting back to us and, and it wasn't going as fast. And I saw the, 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 the closing line, the closing date approaching, and we've been so far from the final raise and I kept asking him so what do what is plan b you know my mind always worked with plan b and he was always saying there's no plan b we will raise we will raise the money don't worry we will. and I'm like okay I can't my mind cannot grasp just the positivity alone you know you have to have a plan b just in case obviously I'm gonna be many we will raise and it's not his first deal. He's done, he's done seven deals, uh, four exits. So I was completely just trusting him. And I just adopt that mentality, you know, adopt the mentality. And it, as a capital raiser, which is mainly my main focus and, and kind of like my superpower, is something that the deal, when a deal is right, when the, the reputation of the operators are good, you know, and they have track record, and the numbers are awesome. The landing is off. If all of the boxes are ticked, it's pretty much set that you're going to raise, you know. And there are plan Bs out there that he just didn't want to, to tell me because he wanted me to rely heavily on being positive first. And since then, I just adopt that mentality, you know, like the deal makes sense. You will find the cash, you know, but obviously that doesn't come easy. As you say, nothing is easy. You have to hustle. You have to hustle. You have to get your salesman kind of sued on and start selling the deal, you know, and presenting the deal, putting the deal in front of people, always with a positive mind. You know, if the deal is right, you will raise. Yeah. One thing you touched on earlier was how you stick to your criteria. And I also believe every investment is going to involve some level of risk. And so that's why it's important to have that criteria to fall back on in order to not only mitigate risk, but have that almost accountability that you'll pull the trigger, assuming it checks all these boxes. And that does lead me to my next uh, question. I wanted to know, when you're evaluating potential investment opportunities, what specific factors do you consider to determine the potential reward is going to outweigh the risk involved in that deal? I was reading a book the other day. It's called The Philosophy of Money. And it, it talks about the risk factor on, on money, period. There is no success. There is no investment without risk. You know, So you're always going to be with the risk. But for us, operator and the kind of the general partners, the head of the whole investment, we need to find ways to be creative, to navigate and to avoid or to minimize as much as we can the, the exposure to risks, right? So one of the things is for sure sticking to your numbers, sticking to your criteria and the markets that you know too. Because I remember when I started, I had like five or six markets that I invest just based on um if it's landlord friendly, if it is population growth and all of that. And sure, 
they they all fit my criteria but i didn't have boots on the ground and i wasn't there and because of my family i'm not able to travel as much to be physically in there so i cut down the number of of places that i invest and uh, stuck to my criteria before i used to be well uh, my criteria is now 50 to 150 units and then if I received uh, 20 units, I would be underwriting. And I'm like, no, I have to stick to my number. I have to stick to my returns. For example, some of them would be like low cash on cash, but high IRR. I'm like, no, it has to meet everything. It has to be a little bit of cash on cash, on cash a little bit of IRR, a little bit of everything. You know, I can't just compensate by having higher, some other kind of return, you know. So you have to stick to your numbers to, navig- to, to mitigate the, the risks. And you have to stick to your criteria as well. And uh, try to be as conservative as possible. You know, I I work with two other partners directly and I keep coming back to it. I'm like, why are we never getting our LOIs accepted? But then when you look, someone else got the same deal, got the deal that we wanted for, right? We We were going for. What are they doing that we are not doing? Maybe the problem is with us. Maybe we are being a little too conservative, too strict to our numbers. Can we kind of put more risk factor in there just to get us going, the number of doors and the number of, of you know, assets on the management? Uh, and I, and I, the ne- very next thought is no, you know, because that's when it gets risky. That's when you put the investor's money at risk because you kind of lean in, you kind of, being a little softer with the rules and uh that's not the kind of investor that i want to be you know because especially from being a flipper it was always my money if i thought that this house would sell for a little bit more just because i really 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 wanted that project it was on me but now we work with a lot of a lot of other people's money you know so the responsibility is three times more for me and i do not play with my investors money i do not play with my reputation because this is something brand new that I'm learning. And for me, this is big. You know, this is from my mental state of when I started to now, this is the big boy games, you know? So I'm I'm not in to take a bigger amount of risks. So I think sticking to your numbers, sticking to the way you want the ride, your criteria, the, the markets that you know, the people that you know, for example, now I'm going as far as not only touring with the agent, but I tore the properties by myself pretending to be a tenant. <laughs> I started doing this yesterday and I really had fun. You know, I felt like a, a undercover detective. I'm like, hey, do you have any apartments avail- available? And then she tore it because then you see that everyone not in their best behavior. Because when you go with the, with the agent, they know that you are a poten- potential seller, you know, and but when you go as a tenant, you see the other side. So to make sure that what is written on the T12 is the same as what the lady told me right there, because if the T12 say that vacant was 12 units and then she told me yesterday it was only four. So, you know, like I take all of these things into consideration when I'm on the writing, when I'm coming up with my final number. So I think that's the main thing. <laughs> yeah. And I was recording the whole thing and I felt even more awkward. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did on my Instagram. <laughs> I can relate and I completely agree. Risk mitigation, it's it's so important. You're, you're As a capital raiser and investing in larger deals, you should be a good steward of other people's capital. It's, it's a big responsibility and it shouldn't be taken lightly. 
So as we mentioned, risk mitigation, it, it's key. Um, and a, a way we've been able to mitigate risk is by investing in our network. And I know you mentioned you had partners, you have a mentor. Uh, we like to leverage other people's experiences and knowledge um, because I mean, we haven't been in this industry for over 20 years, whereas our partners have. And so we can leverage what they, what they know. Um, can you share a specific example of how networking has led you to whether has led you to a valuable partnership and or access to an investment opportunity that you maybe wouldn't have had otherwise. I was on a on a conference right at the start of everything, and the main guy, which is the main uh, person for the conference, was saying that he spends three hundred, four hundred, sometimes a hundred thousand on a year for mentorship, you know, and I was complaining that my mentorship was only 30,000, you know, for me, it was a lot, but compared to the, the bigger risk of doing this by yourself and trying to figure it out by yourself, 30,000 is nothing, you know, and then seeing him still today, after so many years of investing in such a successful career, still paying top dollar for, for a mastermind, for a mentor, mentorship, it was kind of like a, a validation that you should always be invested on education. Not only that, but the people that I surround myself in every single conference, not necessarily I found partners that was going on deals with me, but I found people that when I had something on the, uh, or maybe in their city or they a, a question that I had for them, all of them were very, very supportive and really ready to answer any question that I had. So not necessarily I was reaching out to my direct mentor that I was paying for, but as well as everyone else that I met that I know that was had thousands of doors and, and thousands of exits. And for me to double check if this deal was actually what I thought it was and my underwriting, if my underwriting was actually good and if I was being conservative or something about the local market that they were in and I knew. So networking for sure is one of the first things that I took very seriously after learning, getting your education done, then networking like crazy, because that that's going to be your support system, you know, and by being in a mentorship actually opened the door for me to be on my biggest deal uh, as a, as a co-GP, which was a 419 units here in Dallas. And they only accept partners that were in some kind of mastermind because they did not want, even though they, they want to, open the doors for for newbies like myself, you had to kind of have some kind of mentor behind you so you're not completely green and, and, and not knowing what to do. So for sure, mentorship and networking is something that you have to have, especially as a beginner. And I think as soon as I, I'm done with this mentorship, I'm going to pay for another one because every single mentorship out there, they have different things to teach you, you know? So I'm sure I'm going to be always paying for some kind of mastermind because I believe that not only is your support system, but your way, your, kind of, your college on this, you know? We've invested in a lot of different conferences, mentorship programs, and we've been lucky enough to meet a ton of investors. And one of the characteristics about a lot of the most successful investors we've had the luck of having on our podcast, like you, or just meeting at conferences is they are, like something you touched on earlier, they're, they're humble in their approach to what they know. And they, they know what they know and they know what they don't know. They're willing to admit that they don't know everything. And they're also, I think that keeps them eternally hungry for more information, more knowledge, more growth. Um, and that leads me to kind of the next rabbit hole I'd love to go down. What are some of those characteristics that you see among the most successful investors that you've had the pleasure of working with or just meeting? Everyone is extremely humble. 
you know, and everyone is not about showing off. They are not about uh, being flashy. That was something that I always saw that they had. I remember going to a, a huge meetup in here that I knew it was only very wealthy people. And I pull up to the parking lot and I'm like, am I in the right place? Because I just saw like regular cars, you know, and just no, no flashing anything, you know. And I was like, am I in the right people place? And, and I was. So they are not about being flashy. They are not about being uh, showing what they have at all. And it's something that changed my mind because I thought we were all in this for, for the financial freedom, for the wealth and the comfort. But we are all the very successful syndicators that I'm surrounding myself. They are so focused on growth, on accumulating the number of doors and assets and making the assets work. That is not about the flashy and it's not about the spending and it's not about being extremely just spending the money. You know, they're focused. And, and that's something that changed my mind. You know, like being flashy is actually something when you don't have, you know, when you don't have the money, then you try to be flashy to compensate, you know, or something. But one thing that they, I find that all of the successful syndicators that I'm surround and are very, very successful and wealthy because I know their net worth, you know, they are not flashy at all. And they are all about living within or even below their means until they find enough and they only spend what they get from, from passive income, you know. They all only spend whatever they have from the passive income that they receive and it's amazing. You know, it's, it's kind of true generate it's true building of wealth. That's the difference between a lot of these other assets you can invest in or even career paths. Uh, real estate, it's a wealth building play, not necessarily the active income, cash money. Yes, you, you're cash flowing and that's part of the goal, but the real focus is wealth. And I know you also come from a single family investing background. So my, my brothers and I, we used to wholesale houses. Uh, we used to be mainly focused on flips. We still do something, some of that on the side, but our main primary focus is multifamily now. Multifamily is more of a long-term play. And I think there are some mindset challenges that comes with that, whether you're even on the passive investing side or the active investing side, you really have to be patient. I would, and, and an expert that I spoke to a few interviews ago said uh, real estate, multifamily particularly, takes five to seven years to really build wealth in multifamily. So I'd love to know, <laughs> how did you stay motivated uh, throughout that journey? Oh, it's a constant battle, my friend. It's a constant battle because uh, now it was a, such a huge change from flipping houses that I was cash rich, but asset poor. Now I'm like asset rich and cash tight, <laughs> you know, because every every money that I have, and if I have another hundred or, or 50,000 that comes in from acquisition checks or something, it goes back to the next project. So I, I, I'm not seeing the results, but I'm only being in this for a year. So it's way too early for me to start collecting the fruits, you know, and especially because of this economy, it's going to take probably the five years because we always say three to five years, but it's, it's going to be five years. And that was something that shook me at the start because I thought, and that's why I actually just jumped into paying a mentorship thinking like, I'm like, I'll close up one deal and I'll get that money back. It's not quite like that. You know, you are an entrepreneur. You are now a syndicator entrepreneur, meaning every money that comes back it has to be reinvested back into being a stronger of a partner, right? Because if, I, if I'm only bringing a deal, my shares are going to be less and less. You know, it, because it's a syndication, it gets diluted so much with the waterfall distributions and, 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 
and shares, you know. So you, the more you can come in, if I come in as a GP, finding the deal, capital raising, and I have another 100000 to spend, so I have both sides of the, of the shares, then I become more and more. But I remember the first call that I had with my direct mentor. He's like, okay, I just want you to make sure that you know that this is a get rich for sure, but this is a get rich slow game, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. That was one of the biggest shock I thought was like close one apartment deal when you were rich, you know, but it's not, you know, it's for sure. But think about it this way. What keeps me going is if I keep buying for the next five years, right? That's my plan. And that's how it kind of keeps me going through this hardship, I would say financially right now, is if you keep buying, like the rate that I'm buying every maybe, let's say, let's be conservative now that the it's a little bit harder to find deals. Six months, I close a deal. Five years from now, every six months, I'm going to be selling a deal and getting a big check out of it. You know, so that's kind of how I see it. And then it will last longer and longer because I spent five years doing that. So that at least from five years, every five, every year, I'm going to be closing a deal or two a month, a year, you know, so it's going to be nice. So that's kind of how I see it. And it is for sure a long long scheme game and is a is more for my kids as well you know i want whatever i'm building right now in my lifetime to be passed on to them so they don't have to struggle so hard so then when they become of age they have a couple of assets just cash flowing to pay for their lifestyle you know and they can choose to do something good for the world back you know instead of just having to hustle so hard and give up five years of struggle like i am right now you know to get to that point so that's kind of what keeps me going, my why, which is my generational wealth to pass it on to my kids and to know that in five years, it's going to be it's going to be nice. You know, Simon Sinek, I think, is the author of Start With Why, and he discusses the importance of understanding the purpose behind why you do what you do. For us, it started with retiring our single mom, and I think now it's grown into that's still a big part of it. But now it's grown into just having impact, having lifestyle freedom. Not necessarily just mean be rich, you know, and and it's something that another thing that changed my mindset too. I thought it was just I want to be rich. I don't ha I don't want to have worry about money, you know, money to not be a worry again. But then I'm like, okay, money is getting is getting for sure. So what is your bigger why? Bigger than money? Bigger than being financially free? What you're gonna do back to the world and back to the people? Direct impact your family and what what to the world, you know, apart from your direct family because. Eventually, you're going to become rich and then yeah. you, you're going to stabilize your family, your direct surround. And then what else? You have to keep thinking you're bigger and you're bigger. Why? You know, like what you're going to do with all your free time, you know, what you're going to do with the extra income that your mom and your kids and everyone is looked after. What is going to be else? Because life can be very empty after that because you already done. So you're like, OK, done what I'm here for. I never thought beyond that part, you know, and, and, and now it's like, you always should have some bigger goal and, and some kind of like, now that I'm free and I have all this time and this money, what can I do back to the world? You know, that's something that you should always be looking deep into your soul for that answer. Yeah. I was reading shoe dog by the founder of Nike. I can't remember his, his last name or his first name, but he discussed how he was able to just hang out on the beaches of Hawaii really early in his 20s. And he realized how boring it was, how unfulfilling it was. And that's when he went and decided to go start his shoe business and pursue that. And he found more fulfillment and satisfaction, life satisfaction in that. And I know like, you know, God has just made us to work. So, you know, like we're not supposed to be 
good show and we have to come out here. We have a purpose and an impact. The instant gratification and the gratification difference between single family and multifamily. With single family, you're more likely to see that instant gratification where you get paid within a few weeks or days even. Whereas with multifamily, it's more of a delayed gratification. There's another difference that I was absolutely aware of alongside my brothers. It was a lot more complex. There's that complexity barrier. And we spent weeks, months educating, learning, watching courses, reading books. I know you're a, a fan of the best ever apartment syndication book. We literally consumed that like it was a textbook. And so I wanted to know, how did you balance that education, but also make sure that you were not being caught in analysis paralysis and taking action in a timely manner? I am not sh trigger shy at all. You know, that's something about me. And my first entrepreneurship experience here in the U.S. was putting on a school, a beauty school. So I learned to love to teach people a craft or something that they can do to get their own money and be their own boss, right? So that's where I discovered with that first uh, entrepreneurship business that I had. And I saw two types of students. And now I see the two types of students in my mentorship too, because I connect with so many students that are struggling. I'm always putting myself out there to help others because I was not long ago a beginner as well. And it's the, the, the fear of taking action, right? Feeling all of your demons and all of your, your barriers that you put on your, your own journey, you know, to think that you're not ready yet, or maybe this is not the deal, or maybe I just need to read more books or more guidance, or maybe, you know, you're always going to be doubting some part of your journey, right? Or you're not ready, you're not in the right mindset, you're not whatever, right? But there is a time that you're going to have to take actions. And remember what we talked about it earlier, investments come with risk, period doesn't matter if you're ready now, if you're ready later, it's always going to be some kind of risk factor. So you being ready or not doesn't really help. You know, you just have to take actions and find your way. Uh, one of the, the conferences that I went, the guy said, well, just put yourself in a situation to be lucky. That's kind of what I did as well, you know, and like the luck factor and the, and the risk factors are always combining, always going alongside each other, you know? So sometimes you just have to take actions and try to find a way that you can start. Like, for example, the way I started was I could not get an LOI accepted. I could not find a deal that my number would be an, a strong offer. So what I did was actually connect with a bunch of people that I've done, uh, that I build up a, a reputation and a connection for the past I think it was only two months that I closed my first deal within this this industry, you know? And and I just say, hey, you I know I see you have a deal. How can I add value to you? You know, like how can I'm hungry, I can uh, I'm a good people's person. I'm I was trying to find my way within their group, you know, and I'm like, I don't have money right now to to bring it to the table and I did not find a deal. You guys seem to have everything on hand, but how can I add value? You know, so I kind of say well, I think you, you can always bring capital to deals. So that was a way that I started. My first two deals were just as a capital raiser and uh, trying to complete the raise. And that's a small play and a small um, percentage of ownership that you have. But it was a way for me to be lucky and to start counting the doors and being inside a deal and, and having that track record to qualify for a loan and to qualify for even uh, agents to take me serious, for brokers to take me seriously, you know, because I was already in a deal. So don't be afraid to find ways to be lucky 
and put yourself out there to be lucky and don't be trigger shy. You know, like sometimes you just have to go for it and take action, even if you're not ready, even if it, obviously being careful and being conservative and, but you have to find a way in, you know, just that's something that I'm not, I'm not trigger shy. I'm not, I don't ever get paralysis analysis. You know, I, I analyze a lot of deals and I send a lot of LOIs, but I'm always sending LOIs. So one of them one day will be accepted, hopefully soon, you know? So don't be shy. We're big believers in having good habits and setting habits. And I think that's evident in your approach to, to investing and even your social media content, for example, having that rhythm, having a consistent rhythm you can fall back on. It's harder to stop once you start and you get used to it. But it gets tough, though. I'm not going to say that sometimes I took some breaks and I'm like, I'm not seeing anything. It's so hard because when I take LOI seriously, I don't just underwrite it for 30 minutes and I send a number. And then when it gets accepted, I then go into analyzing the deal a little bit further, which I see some other people doing. But I want it to be to have a good reputation within the brokers and in the market. So I do all of the analysis prior of even sending the LOI and I do it and I crush it within a couple of days, calling the comps and visiting and making sure that the, the, the taxes, the, all of the insurances, everything and the loans, I get all that information. So I'm not sending LOIs and then thinking, oh, uh, I forgot that number. But you have to kind of continue doing that every day, but it gets tired because you're like, okay, maybe I send maybe 25 LOIs and nothing seems to biting, you know? But then again, being creative and saying, okay, so I cannot find my deal myself, so, but I can jump on this guy's deal, you know, this partner of my deal, and I can raise capital and help manage it, you know, and help with the, with the asset management side or something, you know, but there's always something that you can do in the meantime. The most important thing is don't get demotivated and stop. When you stop, it's so much harder. And in the middle of my journey, I'm pregnant now. <laughs> so it was a big shock at first when I found out I was pregnant. It was a surprise baby. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm in the middle of this growth. It took me so long to get the wheels turning, you know, and now I have to slow down. But even though I slow down su substantially, I'm still not on a, on a parking mode. You know, I'm still going for it. I'm still trying to fit within my time, my limitations and but I'm, I'm not, the, the most important thing is to not stop, you know, just keep your real journey. It doesn't matter how much education anyone does when it comes to investing. You're going to have new realizations as you take action and you may even encounter misconceptions that you had about the industry or the asset you're investing in as you're taking action. I know for us, we touched on this, the idea that you could make wealth in real estate, build wealth in real estate faster than you can in reality. Was there any misconceptions that you had about real estate in general or multifamily that you shattered as you advanced in your real estate journey? How long is it gonna take for me to actually reach my 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 financial goals, you know? And it was kind of like the hugest misconception. And that this was reserved for the white and privileged kind of Harvard Harvard students people, you know, and it's not. That was one of my first barriers that I that I destroyed. That was my biggest mindset change that I did was actually like, no, you know, because I remember going to conferences, the conference that I actually signed up for my mastermind and looking around, no one was looking like me. You know, there was not many females. The females that were there was probably just tagging along with their husbands. So that was the number one shock. So I was looking around and I felt so intimidated and this world was so out of my reach. You know, it was kind of, 
I was like, this is not for people like me. You know, like this is not for immigrants. This is not for, um, I'm, I'm a little alternative looking, you know, I have tattoos and I was like, I don't see people like this here, you know, minorities altogether, you know? So I was like, this is not made for me. Maybe I should have gone to Harvard first and some finance schools or something. I have an MBA, but it was in Spain. So I didn't think nothing that I had was competitive enough to be even worth doing a deal with these big guys, you know? And even after closing a couple of deals and feeling so proud of my 200, 150 doors and going there and seeing the speakers, 5,000 doors and, and millions and millions and on the, on, the, on the management, I felt so low, you know, but it's not really like that. You know, it's not like that. If you have the knowledge and the right mindset, and if you take actions, if you care for, if you partner up, if you have the information, you are capable of doing anything you want. That's cliche as that sound. That's how I'm here. I, I should be the proof of that, you know, because, you know, and, and now, and I remember going to conferences and hiding who I truly was. And now I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm there, you know, and I'm there to speak to people, to my people, to people that can relate to me and feel proud that to see me getting all the things that I'm getting, you know? So especially being a mom, it's like being a woman and a mom is like, we raise our families, we take care of our house while our husbands are, are in a W2 or something. How can I do that and learn investments? You can, you know, that's a, a huge misconception that I thought that this was just reserved for the privilege. And it's not, you know, it's, it's reserved to whoever has the fire inside to change and to get the knowledge and go for it. Yeah, we're big believers in the saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. And I know you're, 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 you're big on overcoming limiting beliefs and you put a lot of energy into personal development. So how do you approach that self-assessment and continuous improvement as a real estate investor? And are there any specific examples or practices you engage in? Reading a lot of books on mindset and as well as I did a lot of uh, daily affirmations. I had maybe five or six different daily affirmations, like I'm capable of doing this, I'm just as worthy as any, anyone else, um, I'm going to on the right a deal per day and submit LOIs at five per week and connect with five brokers. Like I had a, a little planned affirmations and I remember putting it in different parts of my house. So anytime that I saw it, I just stopped and I read it, you know, and I did that rigorously for a good amount of months. You know, every time that I saw it, I read it and I read it and I read to a point that I even like, I don't even read it no more. I just knew it by heart, you know? I don't know if that had something to do. I don't know if that shrink had something to do, but it was everything that got me to the mindset that I am today. First, destroying it because the end goal was amazing and it looked beautiful. You know, the, the smiles on everyone's faces thanking me for working so hard it was beautiful and it was real. And because of the daily affirmations kind of stuck with me. I started truly believing that I am capable and I, if I do what, I, what it takes, I will get a deal, you know? And then within three months, I closed my first deal. I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but at least got me to be strong enough to take actions. My Instagram is rad, R-A-D underscore investors. That's kind of like the main page and, and social media that I am in. If anyone wants to connect and get some tips on, on anything, I'm not an expert on anything yet, but I just love to connect with people and see where they are in their journey and how can I add value to their the growth.